Fowlers, this is the old timer coming to you from downtown Memphis with episode 39, which is going to be the Grand Passage. Have you been listening to my podcast for any period of time? You know that I do these every Tuesday, although I think the last one or two, I said I'd started doing them every other Tuesday. So this is the next one, episode 39, and they'd be coming out every other Tuesday. And this one, as I said, was called the Grand Passage. So here we go. Alfred Newman, who was born in 1829 and died in 1907, was a noted English zoologist and ornithologist who said that the migrations of birds is the mystery of mysteries. He elaborated, still, still, the great mystery of how the birds do it remains, and that I begin to fear will never be explained in my time. But yet every aspect of the question is fraught with difficulty, and we must leave the time to discover this mystery of mysteries. As far back as history or tradition extends, from the time when the quail came up from the sea to satisfy the unlawful longings of the children of Israel for the flesh pots of Egypt, even until the present day, to some extent, have the migrations of birds been been considered a mystery. Biblically, in the book of Job, chapter 39, verse 26, the inquiry is made, Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings towards the south? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 7, Even the stork in the heavens knows her season, and the turtle dove, swift, and crane keep the time of their coming. Living so close to the natural world along the Nile, pharaonic Egyptians depended on an intimate knowledge of the annual cycles of waterfowl around them, and thus became closely aware of the habits and movements of animals and waterfowl. From inscriptions, along with the encyclopedic natural history scenes adorning the walls of the Chamber of the Seasons in the 5th Dynasty Solar Temple of Nusariah at Abul-Jorab, we know that the Egyptians were conscious of the seasonal migration of birds in their country and could distinguish between residents and migratory varieties. Observing migratory species even allowed them to mark the passage of time with figure of speech. In the well-known late New Kingdom literary work, the report of Winamon complaining about his long stay at far-off Byblos in Lebanon along the Phoenician coast and wishing to return home to Egypt, Winamon observed, Do you not see the migrant birds going down to Egypt a second time? The first natural historian to write about migration as an observable fact was Aristotle, although Herodotus described the migration of cranes from north of the Black Sea to central Africa with some fancy embellishment 100 years before. He said, The kites and the swallows remain there the whole year, and that the crane they fly north from the rigors of a Scythian winter flocked thither to Ethiopia to pass the cold season. The Mediterranean Black Sea Flyway is one of the three Palearctic African flyways connecting Europe with Africa. Aristotle was an astute observer and as well as recording the times of the departure 
of some species from Greece, enlisting pelicans, turtle doves, swallows, quail, swans, and geese correctly as migrants, he accurately observed that all migrating birds fattened themselves up before migrating, a fact that was subsequently ignored for 2,000 years. Frederick C. Lincoln, who joined the U.S. Bureau of Biological Survey in 1920, where he was assigned the daunting task of organizing the nation's bird banding program, wrote in 1935, This route, talking about the Mississippi Flyway, is followed by such vast numbers of ducks, geese, and other birds that observers stationed at favorable points in the Mississippi Valley during the height of migration can see a greater number of species and individuals than can be noted anywhere else in the world. Almost every year in the ancient Mississippi Flyway, there is one waterfowl flight that is greater than all others. However, spectacular waterfowl flights have happened only rarely in the 20th century. Noted Illinois naturalist and author Frank Bellrose dubbed these breathtaking flights as a grand passage where millions of ducks migrate all at once. This great movement usually occurs during the first week of November, but it may be earlier or later. Faced with snow coupled with blizzard conditions and very low temperatures, an exceedingly large and impressive waterfowl migration began on the central plains of Canada on October the 31st, 1955, and moved southward within the Mississippi Flyway during a three-day period, October the 31st through November the 2nd. Veteran observers concurred that it was the largest single movement of waterfowl since the Armistice Day storm of 1940. On November the 1st, in southwest Saskatchewan, birds moved steadily southward all day. Two days later, the South Saskatchewan River was full of ice, and only a few stragglers were seen in the Kinsler League area where lakes and sloughs had three to four inches of ice by November the 3rd. In Manitoba, Pena Ward, research scientists at the Delta Waterfowl Research Station, located at the foot of Lake Manitoba and about 25 miles north of Portage La Perry, reported that the largest migration of waterfowl he had ever witnessed occurred on November the 1st. The flight lasted from 10 a.m. until dark. Ward estimated that 215,000 ducks had passed over, with most of the mallards passing the Delta Marsh area in one day. In North Dakota, approximately 100,000 mallards stopped along the Missouri River from the Garrison Reservoir to the South Dakota line. 25,000 mallards on Kunkel and Horsehead Lakes near Dawson, and 35,000 mallards on Lake Astabula, north of Valley City. However, most of the large flight overflew the Dakotas and Minnesota, only stopping to rest. The air was full of ducks in any direction that one might look. Observers in smarter planes and owl remarked that as far as they could see on each side, as well as above and below the plane, Ducks fill the air. Adjacent to the Mississippi River near Wapapello, Iowa, one observer gave this vivid description. Starting at about daylight, November the 2nd, and lasting without any apparent let-up until about an hour afternoon, there took place a migration of ducks, mostly mallards, that simply defies description. If an aberrant description could be written, 
Anyone not having seen the migration could not possibly believe or imagine what went on. For about an hour, between eight and nine, the flight was hardly divided into flocks, but rather appeared to be just one solid drove of birds flying with a strong west-northwest wind mixed with light rain, sleet, and snow. The great majority of the ducks flew right on through the neighborhood. By evening, that Luzia National Wildlife Refuge, southwest of Clinton, held at least 150,000 mallards. Reports of waterfowlers and farmers who were near the mouth of the Illinois River on November the 2nd indicated that ducks had migrated in a belt approximately 40 miles wide across Jersey County, Illinois. Those that stopped to rest remained only for a few hours before continuing south. At Crane Lake near Bath, Illinois, the duck population dropped from 120,000 the evening of November the 2nd to 85,000 the following morning. In Missouri, from a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River near Hannibal, one observer witnessed on November the 2nd the greatest waterfowl migration he had ever seen. To many observers, it rivaled the November 11, 1940 flight as to both speed and extent, and the number of ducks involved was reported to have been even greater than the 1940 flight. In Arkansas, the ducks arrived over the entire eastern part of the state at about the same time. On November the 2nd, radio reports were received from game wardens to the effect that large number of ducks, mostly mallards, were arriving. This flight was reported as the largest single movement of waterfowl in the state that ever recorded. Near Jonesboro, hundreds of ducks left the sky to join rafts of ducks already resting on Claypool's Reservoir near Wiener. And I think most of you old-timers and certainly uh, avid waterfowlers know about Wallace Claypool's uh, Wild Acres Reservoir near Wiener, famous reservoir for duck hunting. In Louisiana on November the 2nd and 3rd, mass flights of mallards, gadwalls, green-winged teals, pintails, and scops arrived along with ring-necked ducks, canvasbacks, redheads, and ruddy ducks. All species of waterfowl increased in numbers in Louisiana except the blue-winged teal, which had already passed through much, much earlier what is probably more astonishing is the fact that a Grand Passage occurred in 1954, 1956, and 1957, but to a lesser extent. The 1954 Grand Passage began October the 30th. At Long Lake National Wild Refuge near Moffat, North Dakota, the mass movement of waterfowl in 1955 was similar to one which an observer had witnessed on November the 13th, 1954 but the 1955 flight was much larger, as it was during 1956 and 1957. Probably no time in history was Grand Passage occurred three years in a row, much less in four years. The spectacular waterfowl flights of 1956 were first noticed on the morning of November the 6th, passing through southern Manitoba and in the vicinity of Bismarck, North Dakota and Fergus Falls, Minnesota, on November the 7th, counts of flocks migrating in the region of Spirit Lake, Iowa, indicated a passage of 3,083 ducks per hour from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. The vanguard of this mass flight arrived in Louisiana at noon on November the 7th and continued for two days, bringing at least 1.2 million ducks into the state. The 1957 Grand Passage began 
in western Saskatchewan on October the 22nd under severe blizzard conditions, which caused the birds in many localities to fly only 100 to 200 feet above the ground. In North Dakota, at the Lower Suisse National Wildlife Refuge, Merrill Hammonds, refuge biologist, reported that the master migration began there at 7.30 a.m. October the 24th. The flight continued strong until 10 a.m. with intensity equal to or greater than the dramatic flight on November the 1st, 1955. A flight of 500,000 ducks arrived in Louisiana on the night of October the 24th and during the day and night of October the 25th. The 1955 Grand Passage resulted in an increase of 775,000 ducks in the Illinois River Valley. The 1956 Grand Passage resulted in an increase of 600,000, while the 1957 Grand Passage resulted in an increase of 225,000. The weather responsible for these three incredible Grand Passages was created by low-pressure areas in two years and a high-pressure area in one year. The weather element associated with the flights were extensive overcast skies, falling snow and temperatures, and fairly strong winds which were partially or entirely favorable in the area where the flights originated. To make the decade of the 1950s even more spectacular is that a grand passage was witnessed at the Delta Marsh on November the 8th, 1950, and continued through the next day. At Whitewater Lake, southwest of the Delta Marsh, the heaviest flight occurred on November the 8th, while at the same time an observer watched the last of the waterfowl leave the Lower Source National Wildlife Refuge in North Dakota. For all practical purposes, the duck hunting season in North Dakota was finished on the afternoon of the 9th. At Fergus Falls, Minnesota, a massive migration of mallards and diving ducks was witnessed by observers on the 8th. By the next day, essentially no ducks remained about Fergus Fall, and the area was frozen over. In Illinois, the heaviest flight was November the 9th through the 11th. Far to the south, mallards began showing up in large numbers on the 8th and continued for several days thereafter. Another Grand Passage occurred in 1951, beginning October the 11th. At Delta Marsh, some 200,000 waterfowl overflew the entire marsh witnessed by numerous waterfowlers. Most migrations at the Delta typically occur in the afternoon. The mid-1950s would be the last of the good times for waterfowl and waterfowlers for many years. As extensive drought set in, it would be 15 years, 1970, before that for data showed that the mallard population had reached a level comparable to that of 1955, with a mallard index of 1.2, one of the highest in years. Probably the most notable Grand Passage occurred in 1940, certainly in terms of death. The Armister Day Storms, or the Winds of Hell, as it was called, began November the 11th, bringing one of the deadliest blizzards the Midwest has ever seen. Hurricane winds brought 80 miles per hour winds to the Midwest, a record biometric pressure of 28.66 inches in Duluth, and 26 inches of snow in parts of Minnesota, with temperatures plunging from the 70s to single digits. The storm claimed 154 lives. There was practically no warning that the raging blizzard was on its way, and what started out as a bluebird day quickly turned into the winds of hell.
being a holiday waterfowlers, many dressed in short-sleeved shirts ventured out for a day of hunting and relaxation during the second week of the season. They were not disappointed as thousands of ducks poured into the Mississippi River backwater. With ducks winging ahead of its mighty wrath, shotguns echoed everywhere, telling of their success or failures. Ducks, there were ducks everywhere. They were coming from all directions and flying at four or five different levels against the fierce wind and snow. Not just a flock here or there, but rather hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands. It was a scene that in terms of sheer magnitude will probably never be repeated. It was a scene seldom witnessed. The morning had started out innocently enough. However, during the late morning and early afternoon, a strong cold front moved through the region. Heavy rains turned to sleet, whipping across the marshes like shotgun pellets in the fast-rising gale. The sleet morphed into driving heavy snow as ducks scuttled for shelter while the temperature plummeted and visibility dropped to near zero. The hunting was so good with the sky full of ducks that many hunters refused to leave while others dragged their ice-coated decoys reluctantly from the wind-whipped waves and headed for home. As daylight ended, hundreds of holiday waterfowlers, trapped by the unfathomable fury of the storm, often called the storm of the century, found themselves in horrific life-and-death struggle against the winds of hell. One hundred along the Mississippi River between Winona and Wabasha and another one hundred near Parker Perry were stranded. More than 20 waterfowlers within 50 miles radius of Winona, Minnesota, found themselves stranded on a small island in the Mississippi River, unable to navigate their boats away from shore against 70 miles per hour winds. They eventually froze to death, some frozen like a fence post leaning against a tree. The city bus station became a city morgue when one by one the bodies of frozen duck hunters were retrieved. Two Eau Claire men washed up on the shore of the Mississippi River, seven miles north of Alma, Wisconsin, victims of the storm after a duck hunting trip. One hunter drowned in the river while he was hunting. His boat capsized, and while he was clung to the side of the overturned craft, he became numb and exhausted and slipped into the icy water when rescuers were stalled in repeated attempts to rescue him. A father stranded on a Mississippi River island told his youngest son, to jump to stay warm. Every time he stopped, his older brother punched him. The dead and the older brother died on the island. The younger brother kept jumping, jumping throughout the night and was rescued the next day. Both legs were frozen below the knees. Each was amputated at the age of 16. Fortunately, many survived, save by the heat generated from their retrievers. Others built fires from their gun stocks, paddles, and decoys while others hid beneath their ice-covered boats or in their blinds, covering themselves with tapoyans or anything else they could find. Many could only find grass, which they burned with outboard motor gasoline and oil. The first bodies of waterfowlers along the Mississippi River were brought in on November the 12th, and when the storm had passed on November the 14th, the Armistice Day Storm of 1940, through drowning and exposure, had killed dozens of duck hunters along the Mississippi and Illinois River. Roughly 30 waterfowlers from Minnesota and Wisconsin perished in the storm. Today, the waterfowlers who survived the ordeal can still remember every detail of that day.
The Brits called them angels, ethereal blimps that cluttered screens of the earliest World War II radar used to detect incoming aircraft. Only when they realized that the angels appeared at night and moved en masse in the spring and autumn did radar operators and scientists realize the angels must be large flocks of migrating birds and not disembodied souls or V2s. Instead, they were eiders, geese, and other North Sea waterfowl using the cover of night and a stiff wind to migrate. However, it was not until 1957 that radar could detect flocks of migrant birds after the National Weather Service developed a nationwide network of weather surveillance radars to monitor and forecast atmospheric conditions. They showed up as diffuse green blobs, or ghosts as they were called, crossing the monitor. The same radar angels that had puzzled and even awed the military during World War II. For many years, man's only clue to the extent of nighttime migration was by moon watching, counting the silhouettes of birds passing in front of the moon over a given period. With the discovery of radar, many secrets of migration would be unraveled by this new giant bird watcher. Near record rainfalls during the summer of 1995 led to an extremely large hatch of waterfowl, millions of ducks, more even than in the banner year of 1994. This was to be the year of recovery of 50-day day seasons, spurred by a fall flight of 83 millions, a 12.5% increase, an estimated 12 million more than 1994, and 24 million more than in 1993. Hope was alive across the land because the continent's duck population had at last recovered to historic levels after a precipitous decline in the late 1980s. However, for the northern states, it was not to be. Following an unusually bomber autumn on November the 2nd, 1995, a powerful blizzard exploded out of the Canadian prairies. Many will recall the Grand Passage that occurred that November. It was reported that at least 50 million waterfowl and perhaps as many as 80 million were engaged in that Grand Passage. So numerous and so dense were the clamorous flocks that radar scopes at major Midwest airports were overwhelmed, causing the airports to shift to backup radar coverage. Four Midwestern cities had their radar systems shut down for several hours. Minneapolis, Des Moines, Omaha, and Kansas City. At that time, some radar systems were successful to shutting down if they tracked a minimum of 700 targets at a given time. Immediately before the system in Omaha shut down, it had identified more than 29,000 targets. So dense were the flocks of waterfowl that radar scopes couldn't distinguish birds from airplanes. A major cold front pushed the ducks on onward on a Grand Passage on November the 2nd and 3rd. Like the other Grand Passages, they swept through the Dakotas, went to Constant and Minnesota, increasing numbers, picking up flights as they flew south and kept on going. Illinois had 657,000 ducks compared with 1994, 999, 675,000, and the numbers steadily declined as the waterfowling season progressed. Wisconsin was down to 19,000 puddle ducks along the Mississippi by November the 19th in a slow season. Missouri's numbers remained high throughout November and did not decline until early December 
when severe weather prompted 70% decline in the duck population. Arkansas was holding 35% fewer ducks than 1994 because summer droughts left water reservoirs too low to flood the customary areas of timbers and rice fields. The big winner was Louisiana, which had 3.8 million ducks as early as November the 6th through the 13th. They had 1 million more than their average and 700,000 more than 1994. Moreover, those ducks got there a week after the Grand Passage. So it goes to show that a good forecast doesn't mean a thing if the weather doesn't cooperate. Now, waterfowl as I was uh, duck hunting during the season of 1994-95 and 1995-96 season. So the season of 1994-95 and the season of 1995-96, which we just mentioned here, was spectacular duck hunting seasons for me. The two of the three most spectacular I ever had in my lifetime. As I stated, I think I said I was hunting down in Mississippi at that time. And the, the 19, the season of 1994 and the following season of 1994 were due to the Grand Passage. My other spectacular year was 1988-1983 in Mississippi, around Charleston, Mississippi. And that wasn't due to a Grand Passage. That was more to the northern areas freezing up so thick that the ducks had to come down to the Mississippi area. And the Tallahatchie River where I was hunting was, was uh, although the, everything was frozen up, the Tallahatchie River was overflowed and was keeping potholes and areas and fields available for hunting. And it was absolutely tackler, more so than the season of 1994 and the season of 1995. Additional grand passages of waterfowl occurred in 1947. Mass waterfowl migration reached its peak at Delta Marsh on November the 6th when it was estimated that 100,000 ducks, mostly lesser scops, crossed the delta in one hour just before sundown. A heavy migration was also noted by Aldo Leopold, who is the father of wildlife management. He noticed it over Madison, Wisconsin region the same day. In Minnesota, the heaviest migration took place on the 6th and 7th. Nebraska, 6th and 8th. Illinois, 7th through the 9th. Missouri, 6th through the 8th. Louisiana reached its peak on November the 8th. 1947. In the autumn of 1949, a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Observer witnessed a mass flight passing over eastern Dakota swept down from Canada. The Grand Passage lasted one and one-half hours, and the birds were so high that most of them could not be seen without the aid of binoculars. Thirty miles south of St. Louis, the same blizzard swept down from the northwest, an unfathomable number of ducks, mallards, pintails, canvasbacks, and every other kind. They poured down the Mississippi River during the evening and throughout the night in countless numbers, hundreds of thousands, heading for the distant feeding grounds in the warm Southland. As far as one could see, both up and down the river and out across the wide Illinois bottomlands, migrating bands passed swiftly and every height. In 1929, the year the stock market crashed, a winter storm swept the Alberta countryside clean of waterfowl. The November exodus was described by a farmer. The sky was black with them, flying in formation like geese in bunches around 30 or 40. As to the number, all I can say is that they passed over in the thousands. In Good Morning America, the poet Charles Sandberg published in the Atlantic Monthly, 1923, the article, 
Poetry Considered, where he listed and numbered 38 one-sentence definitions of poetry among them, quoting, Poetry is a sky dark with a wild duck's migration. End of quotation, and so it is. I close with a message from Michael McIntosh from his book, The Grand Passage, quoting, Our job is to accommodate the presence with all its realities, pleasant and otherwise, and recognize that we own from the past a great lesson and a costly one. We know now that the Grand Passage could all too easily pass beyond every reach but that of memory. What we do with what we know will be the measure of what we are. So what a fellas, that ends episode 39, The Grand Passage, and I listed all that I know about. I'm not sure one has happened after the season of uh, 1995. Maybe it has, but I'm not aware of it. Those years I mentioned were, although many of them I wasn't around at that time, was absolutely spectacular. Obviously, the duck season of 1940, the Marmers Today Storm, was the most tragic of the Grand Passages. It was just truly a, a tragic event. I wasn't born to 44, so I didn't really witness that one, thank God. Waterfowlers, I hope you have time to visit my website, waterfowling.net, and uh, look at my blog there. I have many old stories similar to this, which I have written and is on the blog for you to read, and I, which I have not done a podcast on yet, so visit it. On there, you'll also see the books that I have written. My latest one is The Historic Duck Hunting Images, Volume 2, and it's been out now for about six weeks, and I sold out of my copies, and... Uh, about four weeks. So I don't, I have a few left, which I have bought back from a bookstore. So if you looking for one of my books that are out of print, give me a, a email contact through my website and I'll see what I can do for rounding up one of my books for you. I've sell them for what I buy them back for. So I don't jack up the price on you. So visit my website. I am working on volume three of the historic duck hunting images. It will be covering uh, 19 states, certainly the eastern coast states and the upper Mississippi flyway states. So look for it. I'm going to turn it into the printer, and it takes about two months after I turn it into the printer to get it printed. So it'll be a couple of more months before Volume 3 come out. So if you want to get Volume 1 or Volume 2, give me a buzz through uh, contact on my waterfowling.net website. You know, in most of my, or a lot of my podcasts, I usually close with a reflection. But this time, I'm going to close with a unique short story entitled Bygone Years. And it's the famous duck joke trial. Here it goes. A trial occurred in New York in July 1977 regarding defendants charged in Buffalo, New York, with two counts of murder burglary, and robbery, which attracted massive local newspaper and TV coverage, with newspapers using such headlines as Syndicate, The Organization, Mob, Costa Nostra, Mafia, and FBI Breaches Mob Crime Here. On their first page, they print out all of these things. One of the three defendants were labeled by the FBI newspapers as the ringleader of the Mafia for that area of the country. 
The people's summation followed a strenuous three weeks trial involving the testimony of prostitutes, a paid informer, and five FBI investigators, which had arisen from the brutal and lured killings. The courtroom atmosphere was charged and filled with emotions. The prosecutor's presentation was dramatic. The counsel for the defendants repeatedly objected to its inflammatory and his disparaging remarks of their clients as vultures were overruled. At the conclusion of the summation, the defendants moved for a mistrial, citing its inflammatory nature, the references to vulture, and particularly the famous duck joke, which counsel argued was an unfair effort by the prosecution to invoke guilt by association and guilt by classification. The famous duck joke refers to a story related by the prosecutor near the end of his summation that if you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck and you keep the company of ducks, then you are a damn duck. The defendant's counsel asked for a mistrial based on the inflammatory remarks made by the prosecutor and news stories, citing, among other things, the numerous references, but most importantly, the prosecution's that if you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck and you keep the company of ducks, then you are a damn duck. With this implication of guilt by association, which had obviously taken on added significance in light of the publicity associated the defendants with the members and leadership of the mafia. In five separate editions, newspaper editions, covering four days, Two Buffalo newspapers in an unrelenting barrage of front-page stories had unalterably linked two of the defendants with organized crime and with the leadership of the Mafia, Arcosta Nostra, which, the article proclaimed, had been responsible for several gangland killings and were engaged in extensive loan sharking and gambling operations in the area. In the light of the prosecutor's walk like a duck, talk like a duck, keep the company of ducks, summation, the message could not escape even the least discerning juror. Nevertheless, the motion for a mistrial was dismissed by the judge and they found guilt on all charges. It was appealed to the state Supreme Court who noted that the defendant's counsel frankly conceded in his brief and we concur that some of the prosecuting attorney's remarks on summation should have been tempered and some omitted entirely. In particular, the characterization of the defendants as vultures and the so-called duck jokes were improper. Such remarks should have been stricken with appropriate instructions to the juror to disregard them. In all the circumstances, the judgment is reversed and a new trial granted. So, folks, that's the duck joke. And I know you've heard, if you talk like a duck and walk like a duck, then you're a damn duck. So, anyway, that closed episode 39. And it'll come out this Tuesday. I'm dictating this on a Monday. So the next one after episode 39, episode 40, will come two week, two Tuesdays from this coming Tuesday. So tune in all every other week for my podcast. Thank God I close with may God bless.